Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. It's Don Taylor again with another episode of the Speaks Exchange podcast. This episode, I have with me Derek Mitchell, the founder of the Learning Measurement Company and somebody who's made a bit of a name for himself, talking about learning data and analytics in the past few months. Derek, good to have you with us. Hi, Don. Hi. Uh, Derek, could you introduce yourself? Where have you come from? What's your background? What are you doing right now? Totally. So I'm working as an analytics consultant and I have a passion for measuring the impact of training and development activity. In a nutshell, that's me. So I've been working in the L&D analytics space for around four years, and I've stood up analytics teams at Sky, Tesco, and the Royal Bank of Scotland. The the real bee I have in my bonnet, having spent a fair bit of my career measuring (laughs) performance with L&D areas, such as operations, product performance, marketing, is that training functions rarely use the data they already have effectively. And largely because of this, the rest of the business often tend to see them as an area which needs to be engaged just when new information needs rolled out or boxes need ticked and not Mm. the value centre it should be. Something from that really jumped out to me, Derek, this idea that the data is already there. Can you just tell me quickly about that? The data, we have the data already, we, shouldn't, we don't need to go and find it? Most organizations should. So if we think about this at the simplest level, and we take two data sets, one being learning completion, so who attended learning, mm-hmm. right? That, that should be quite straightforward. And then we've got on the job performance. So any operation will know how many sales a person makes or how productive they are on a phone call or what their attendance is. So by marrying these two data sets together, um, looking at when these events happen in relation to each other, we can, we can start doing some pretty cool stuff. Well, we can do. I think we might come back to that. I like the idea of a a theoretical approach. I always say to people, it's not just about the learning data. The data does exist in the business. And so what you're saying is marry the two together and you will start telling interesting stories. Talking about stories, you've, you've got lots of experience in this field. Can you tell us more about where you've come from, practical experience about where you've used data and analytics in our field? Absolutely. So so, so data ultimately is driven by behavior, right? And if we don't like what we see in data, we have to change the behavior in order to change the data that we see. So. My, my background is in managing lots of analytics teams and, and where analytics teams don't quite deliver is that they focus too much on the data and organizing it and presenting it and not actually the behavior that generates that. And then non-analytics functions such as L&D don't always know what to ask or what's possible from a data point of view. So one of the first things I tried to do when, when starting to focus on L&D activity was to try and follow the industry or an industry standard methodology, which is the Kirkpatrick Phillips stuff. So starting with level one, understand, the experience and so I mm-hmm. tried to pull together all the historical feedback within an organization. Um, it turned out that wasn't always possible because people asked different questions every time training's delivered, right? Did you love it? Did you like it? I can't compare the answers of these over time, over formats, and so on and so forth. So doing a bit of a dive into how they'd been used in the past, I noticed that the interpretation of feedback was hugely open to bias, right? And Within L&D, only the good comments were pulled out and shared with stakeholders, right? Every, everything was a success, which, which is one way of using data. I'm laughing because, of course, I'm sure in my distant past, I've done that myself. But carry it, on. 
we're human, right? There's there's tendency to do that. So so I standardized a process by asking the same question for everything, okay? And then use the machine to interpret the results to, to actually remove any any human bias, okay? And that start, start meant we could start to track experience over time in an honest way. It was a really simple piece of work, but it's fundamental to getting that first step in place. So, so using that feedback from our learners, we were able to understand how they felt about learning and when and why this was. So allowed us to overlay things like performance prior to the period of learning and performance afterwards. We could also link that performance not only to the training, but how they felt about it, their tenure in the business, their, their age and all sorts of stuff. So we were then able to look at that across time, formats, age groups, shoe color, hair color, whatever attributes were in our model. And I pretty much looked at everything that I could look at. I'm sure you didn't include shoe colour and hair colour, come on. Interestingly, um, I didn't, but, but I could have at a bank. I did work at a bank at one time and, and we weren't allowed to wear shoes which were brown. So you weren't allowed to wear brown shoes. The director just forbade it. Someone turned up in brown shoes, they were sent home. Absolutely ridiculous. But overlaying those people's performance data against other people, I bet they would over-index for being creative and a bit maverick and so on and so forth. So it, it could, it, shoe colour could be interesting. Hey, hey, I'm not going to rule it out until I see the data. Who knows? It could be fundamental okay so you've got you 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 you've got a wide range of variables here you also have standard data which is crucial so you're asking the same question in the same way i've done this myself gosh 20 years ago even with the most basic stuff you can get pretty important stuff out of it what did you find in terms of correlation between how people felt about training and the performance results i'll i'll be honest there's a very weak correlation between how people feel about the training and the actual performance results so so i take an approach of looking at three things i i look at how how do the learners feel Okay, and this, this is about them giving qualitative feedback about it was too long, it was too short, it was boring, it was hot, cold, etc. Yeah. I look at how confident they feel on the subject and I look at the performance movement based on, well, actual performance. And there's a really right. strong correlation between how confident they self-state that they feel and performance movement there afterwards. There's almost no correlation between how they feel, right? So someone can come out feeling it was the worst experience of their life. It might not actually have that much of, of an effect. But from a cognitive load point of view, it's good to know, right? If people are coming back and saying a course is too long, in fact, from a business point of view, if we get you know, 50% of learners coming out saying it was too long, then that's quite good because rather than taking people off phones or away from the shop floor for an hour, we can do it for half an hour and actually have mm -hmm. a saving as a result of that. So, so the qualitative feedback is really important in understanding the experience and there's efficiencies to be found in it. In terms of um, how it relates to performance, less so. I, I often think that if, if I was to have a classroom of people take someone from the front row cut one of their arms off and dip them in vinegar right that would be a horrible horrible experience and it would be incredibly negative and if you ask people how they felt they'd probably say not very good but if you gave them a lesson that day they'd probably remember it so ha happiness isn't everything listeners to the podcast should note this is not a recommended process for making learning stick i 20 years ago ran a training center in london very large 12 million dollar turnover everything was down to operational efficiency i was very keen to know how did people feel about it because i had no link to their performance this was a commercial provider i just cared that when they went when they left the room they felt positive about it and told people back at work they felt good about it correlated over those two years that I was running this people's responses to the training, the level one, the happy sheet, to the other factors we knew about on that sheet and in the environment at the time. The two greatest predictors of people being satisfied 
and happy with the course, but not the person training it, not the course itself, but the state of the toilets and the state of the lunch that day, because we provided lunch for people who could track it. And this is not a surprise to me, and probably not to you, but I think it was a surprise to everybody else who worked there, who thought, well, obviously it's the training. Very often there are other factors which we do need to look into to, Absolutely. to tell us how things are, to tell us what's really happening. Now, I think this business of confidence being related to performance is, is very interesting. Do you have anything more about that? Because I, it, it strikes me that that's a question usefully that a lot of people on the podcast could ask people as they leave their courses. Would you recommend doing that? Um, so when, when, when at Sky, we, we, I was fortunate enough to have tens of thousands of learners, essentially, going through hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of learning events. So, so I was able to test lots of different questions with people. Okay? So the way we used to measure learning, for instance, is we might ask 10 questions at the end of a, a learning experience, and if they got eight right, they, we would say, okay, they're very confident in that subject. And whether people scored high or low on that had no correlation to performance. So, so I thought, okay, let's try something different. And we asked all sorts of different questions, like, um, do, you, do, do you think you you could answer lots of questions on this stuff. Do you think you know everything you need to know, etc.? And over populations of lots and lots of different thousands of people getting asked different questions, we were able to, to see that the one question that actually correlated to performance was, how confident do you feel in a topic? Right, That very simple question. And whether people say, I feel very confident, or this was on a one to scale, 10 scale, people who say, you know, over eight to 10, for instance, will have a better performance, generally speaking. Now, there'll be one or two people in a population that don't. People who answer a one or a two, mostly, for the vast majority of the population, will have no difference or actually negative impact to their performance after learning. You'll get one or two people in that population who will overperform. So as a proxy, as a guide for predicting performance, you know, one, two, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. three months after the fact it was actually really powerful fascinating that such a simple question should be so predictive really across presumably all topics well i've tried it within sales environments and within service environments so this is where we've tried to affect the conversion rate from people uh-huh. selling things or cross-selling things and from within environments where we're just trying to push up the customer nps or the csat scores so so across oh in fact we've also done it with engineer revisit rates so if you imagine um, one of the the, yeah. the, the, the ones it's, that's a, key, it's a key metric for yeah the exactly yeah. by the way for listeners csat customer satisfaction nps is net promoter score it's a standard way of uh, checking whether customers will go out and be positive about you. Look, I could talk with you because uh, uh, it's great to chat with someone who really understands data, has got good practical experience with it all day about this stuff. But I don't think everyone in L&D feels that way. A lot of people are pretty wary about data despite its power. We just discussed one simple question, which could be really useful. Why do you think it is? Why do you think people are wary of data? So I think people often associate data with writing lots of code and using difficult math and understanding statistics. And Mm -hmm. using data can involve writing lots of code and using difficult math and, and lots of statistics. But within the context of learning functions, the data is usually quite straightforward. Forward. Okay, so so if we think about the three things we want to look at, or, or that certainly I look at, which is what what material did people consume, what did they think of it, and what if anything happened as a result. Okay, fundamentally th- those things. And yeah. um, so there's loads of tools out there now which allow people, without any deep data knowledge, to easily pull these things together to understand where things are working and where things are not working. So I do a fair bit of one-on-one coaching, and one of my favorite moments is when people start to get how straightforward the use of data can be, even when looking at things on paper which sound very complex. Working one-on-one with, with people allows me to go every, through every step of a data journey from gathering data, right? That, whether that's through a survey to, to cleaning mm-hmm. it, um, to, 
to joining it with other bits of data and then actually presenting it. And I get the impression, particularly with people working in training functions, that the books on data might be a bit dry. And one-on-one -on -one just allows a lot of questions to be answered as we go, rather than someone opening a book, seeing a, a, a table <laughs> that's talking about yeah. standard deviation and putting that book down. So you're, you do this one-to-one -one stuff, which I didn't realise you did, which sounds fascinating. When you're talking with people one-to-one, -one, Derek, what's the most common set of reactions they have is, or is there any commonality it's usually just surprise at how easy stuff is you know i use modern analytics tools such as tableau power bi sas va click sense all these all these things and in terms of um loading data up which within a data we talk about etl which is extracting transforming and loading data and that in itself can be sound quite intimidating to people but ultimately what we're doing is connecting a tool to a data set which might be an excel mm -hmm. file loading it up and then stitching it to other bits of data that have common fields in the use of yeah. uh, in the case of learning that might be a learner ID or an employee yes. ID. Now, as soon as you walk through these steps with people, they realize it's not scary at all. And as soon as you join two data sets, the penny drops of the power that how, uh -huh. how one data set can relate to the, the other and how easy it is to actually pull out insights from the relationships between different things. One of the joys of modern analytics tools as well is the, the speed at which you can answer questions. So once you've done that, loading in data, you've joined it up, you can then explore it. And L&D people are inherently quite creative people, right? And, and in my experience, they're often very enthusiastic. So if, if they've got a toy and they've got data and they can actually explore it almost without thinking and start to see things they've never seen, it's quite an enthusiastic response. Now that's interesting. I always say that the, the trick in data is firstly getting a hold of it and then knowing the questions to ask, then interpreting. Uh, what you've seen. I'm delighted that you're suggesting that L&D people pretty much are good at asking the right questions and interpreting what they've seen. Indeed, they, they, they can be good. A lot a lot of it's down to modern tools as well, in uh -huh. that it, it used to be very onerous to actually yes. try and answer a question, and you'd go down lots of rabbit holes, which would be very time-consuming. The more modern tools, I you can literally answer, explore a chain of thought in real time in a matter of seconds you know, clicking as you go and follow chain of thought, realize it's going nowhere and just step right back and then go off and find, you know, explore a different one um, without, without code generally. So, something like, oh, it looks to me like we're doing this and that has this effect. I wonder if that's something to do with, I don't know, where they're located in the country or the age of the manager or something. And you can go and explore that data and get a yes or a no and either it's a dead end or you pursue it further. That's the sort of thing you're talking about. That's exactly it. It lets you form a hypothesis, which you can then go off and test with experiments. Derek, that word experiment is very interesting. When we've talked in the past, you've, you've mentioned the idea of experimenting with data, and that's not a word that people usually associate with data. Can you explain more about that? Totally. So, so you mentioned previously about one of the key drivers of a positive outcome from learning being, being the lunch. Okay. Mm. Now, there's a hypothesis. We might see that in the data that says course A has really good positive feedback. Course B has really negative feedback. We know that there was ham sandwiches in course B and there was prawn sandwiches in course A and prawn sandwiches in course B. So we might hypothesize that ham sandwiches make people happier and therefore drive a higher engagement score in learning. So just observing that isn't enough. We have to test it, right? So, so let's get people who are with the same tenure, who do the same job, all the other conditions are the same, and deliberately split them up on a training event, perhaps where a group get no sandwiches, some, some get ham sandwiches, some get prawn sandwiches, and see 
is our hypothesis true? Now that's that's a really cheap experiment. I, I liken it to, to putting biscuits in a room. Right, put biscuits on a table and your engagement scores will go up easy. That is that is absolutely true. And in fact, one of the key things that our organisation used to do was make sure we had very high quality biscuits in the room. You're talking there about you're talking there about a classic hypothesis testing experiment. You're going to have a group. You'll have a, a control group, you'll assess them against each other. Some people get very bound up with having to have these things being totally scientifically rigorous. How much do you think having a sample that is representative enough, a group that is big enough is okay, rather than trying to be absolutely scientifically spot on? It depends on the size of the question. So if we're talking about biscuit budget over the next 12 months <laughs> of £500 and we think, you know, will we try and save that £500 by not putting biscuits in a room and what impact will it have? I would suggest that people who over-index for being disagreeable will, will be completely turned off by learning. Then I'm not going to be too bothered about being mathematically sound on that one. If we're saying we've got a, a seven or eight million pound business decision that says, should we go all in on digital or should we hold some back for classroom? then I would want more confidence in that. And that, that's, that's where a bit of um, sample size and statistics and stuff comes in. From a business point of view, the analyst in me says, yes, we should always have absolute confidence and we should be as scientific as possible. Mm -hmm. I do find from business stakeholders, if it's right more often than it's wrong, that's okay. And that, that's why I think L&D shouldn't worry too much about stats and math. And I think that's where L&D needs to perhaps be both rigorous and relaxed. So we need to be rigorous because we absolutely need to test hypotheses. We need to check them against alternatives and against possibly placebos. But it doesn't mean that we need to be fully rigorous and have something that we could then publish in nature. It, there, is, there is somewhere between the two of these, which is the right place. And it's probably towards the more pragmatic, let's get the job done end of it. And that's what you're saying, isn't it? That the business will accept a good argument if you can make it stand up. Absolutely. And again, that comes down to the data. So it's, it's not just walking into a room and saying, I think that, that biscuits make a difference. Yes. It's walking into a room and saying, we noticed that when there was biscuits, they made a difference or we thought they made a difference. We tested that in an experiment and it showed that for that population, yes, biscuits actually drove higher engagement. So we suggest keep that budget, biscuit budget of £500 and maybe upgrade to gold foil wrapped ones or something. <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing, but it's it's 100% correct. And you know what? I think just having that short conversation where you said we noticed it, we tested it, this is what we found, and we suggest this practical bit of insight leading to an action as a result of it is the crucial bit that a lot of people in L&D don't then do. We don't then say, here's the data, here's the information, here's the insight, here's the suggested action that comes as a result. It's too much, very often, too much about presenting people with numbers and saying that's what we did Indeed. and that's not enough and, and I, I i trivialize this a little bit with 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 biscuits but we've used, used this test and learn and, and this controlled experimentation with data approach in lnd and, mm -hmm. and see millions of pounds where we've just identified that material has no effect i think it's a very good way of putting it to be honest because rather than dressing things up too much if we know that you can run this process with something like biscuits we can absolutely run it with everything else and, and we should so it's not trivializing it at all it's, it's giving a clear example by the way for our north american colleagues of course a biscuit in the uk is a cookie it's not what you call a biscuit which is something else entirely what can we expect these analytics to show us 
Derek, when we've, we've got the data, we've run some experiments, we've got some results, well, what do we do with it? What can we expect? Okay, so, so analytics essentially can show us everything, okay, depending on the complexity of our model. But, and that depends on how sophisticated we want to get. But at its simplest, analytics will tell us what people really think um, through what they say and how mm -hmm. they say it and how they interact with our content, not just how they say they're interacting with the content, but actually what we can see them doing, okay? Right. So, so analytics will also show us how to optimize outcomes. So one of my favorite pieces of work was avoiding an opportunity cost through poor scheduling of learners in a classroom course. Okay, so over a 10-week period... Teams, just one second, Derek. Yeah. I just want to be quite clear that everyone uh, who's listening understands what an opportunity cost is. Of it's course. when... Well, you go ahead and explain what opportunity cost is. So, so we might say that we ran a course and sales went up 2% as a result of the course. What we don't know as a result of that is if we'd done something else, sales might have gone up by 3%. And mm -hmm. that, that opportunity, the difference between those two things is the opportunity cost. We lost X by not doing Y. Very good. Let's carry on then. So you were able to do something which had a, a big effect. Yeah. So... Um, Essentially, over a 10-week period, we, we had teams that were taken into a classroom to receive training on a new product, okay? Now, the scheduling of the teams was going to be conducted by the operation based on the availability within each function, okay? With the groups being trained, being actual teams of people who worked together under the same manager. So within those groups, we had high performers, low performers, and average performance, all mixed up for the duration of that 10 weeks. Yeah, so we had training materials, we had a population of people to be trained, and we had a time period over which to train them. What analytics helped us do was get better results from the same materials, the same people, and the same amount of effort. Okay, so, so my team had run an experiment in India previously where we, we funnily enough, we put biscuits in a room and we invited people in to talk about their, their sales practices and how, how, how to get the best results. And we watched who self-elected to go into that room. So looking at those who actually went in, it was clear that the higher performers or people already performing higher were those most likely to actually self-elect to go in a room. And then it was the average performers and the poorer performers weren't represented very well at all. We then tracked the conversion uplift post that activity and noted those who were already performing well actually performed best afterwards. They had the highest uplift and then those in the middle right. had the next highest uplift and those at the bottom had no or negligible uplift. Okay. So the event was actually exaggerating the differences existing already in your cohort. Exactly right, which is kind of a no-brainer if you think that people who overcome objections in the first place can overcome objections better afterwards, you know, when, when they've spoken to their colleagues. And people who are uncomfortable doing that are still uncomfortable, you know, or not as comfortable as much of an increase in comfort as the other people. It's not, anyway. it's not necessarily no-brainer, but anyway, let, let's carry on. Let's carry yeah. on. So, so that, that, that essentially led us to believe that those who were already good at sales might perform better when presented with a new product than those who were already performing poorly. Okay. Mm. So for, the, for this new product training, essentially what we done was front-loaded the best sales agents rather than have them distributed over the 10 weeks. Okay. Right. And, and that had two benefits. One, it let them get through training quicker and back on the uh -huh. floor to sell the products. So any conversion uplift we saw, we saw quicker. So they were selling earlier than they would otherwise have been. We also coming had back to opportunity, coming back to opportunity cost, that's you're, you're avoiding the opportunity cost of, of having them in the classroom too long. And that lost time is time they should have been selling. So that's a great saving. Uh, absolutely. And putting someone in in week one rather than week eight, where they could have been selling for that seven weeks, it, it didn't make sense. So, so by doing that and front-loading the best learners, they had the same material, we had the same population going through, it was still over the 10-week period, and we actually had incremental sales of around quarter of a million pounds, just in terms of having our best people selling 
earlier. A quarter yeah. of a million pound uplift in sales. Yep. Just by that one change to scheduling. That's right. So we were able nothing to... to do nothing to do with the instructor, nothing to do with the content, nothing to do with how the slides look, nothing to do with the technology. It's a scheduling thing based on the result of some learning analytics. That's exactly it. And and we were able to do that as a result of having the data in the first place to find the find a reason for having a hypothesis, testing that hypothesis, and then actually putting it out to to the place. So it's, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. It's not pretty cool. Don't be so de self-deprecating. It's brilliant. A quarter of a million pounds. That's, that's, <laughs> if everyone listening to this podcast could go to their bosses and say, I can save you a quarter of a million pounds, I think we'd have some very happy listeners. Interestingly, I, this is not to do with this necessarily, but what about the rest of the cohort? So you take the top performers out, how did the rest of them respond to the training? And do you, did you have any information on that? So, so we looked at everybody. We, we went through and looked at the, the sales performance on this new product for everyone who went through training. And as, as we saw, the, the, the people who were higher performers in product X before they were trained came out and they, they were selling more of product Y as an opportunity to sell than our average performers and our average performers were in turn, in turn selling more than our previously lower performers. So, so what we saw in India completely held true throughout right. the thing. And that, that actually enabled us to then do some, some math after the fact to say, had we distributed our better performers throughout that 10 weeks rather than front load them, and we had equally distributed our poorer performers or front loaded them in the first week, what would that have looked like in terms of incremental sales? So, so it's just a case of using data to juggle things about and it, it costs nothing to do. That's what I love. It's, there's no cost here. You're just getting a procedural efficiency and a substantial procedural efficiency by using the results of one of these experiments. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty impressive. You talk about this business of having conversations one-on-one -on -one with people, and that's, that sounds quite close. On the other hand, you're talking about making substantial impacts on sales of organization. How do we make analytics easy for everybody? So everyone can be doing this sort of high-impact stuff. L&D analytics has to be easy for everyone, okay? So, so I look at this in th as three groups it needs to be easy for. We've got the learners, okay. We've got L&D function and we've got the business, okay? So if we think about the learners and gathering feedback from them, for example, we shouldn't be putting them through a process of giving us lots and lots of verbatim feedback that we're not going to use, okay? And we shouldn't be allowing their, the responses that they do give us to be interpreted incorrectly, okay? So we shouldn't hmm. be saying to somebody, did you enjoy that course? And letting them give us five paragraphs of what they, <laughs> they enjoyed about the trainer's dress. It's no use. We're not getting anything from It's that. no use to them. It's high, and uh, it's no use to us and it's high effort for them, okay? So I, I like to make that easy by saying one question, describe that experience, okay? L&D analytics also has to make life easy for L&D, okay? And because analytics is based on data models, this is just joining different data sets together, once that's built, all the reporting can be automated. So I've gone in and, and taken on teams of analysts who have been throwing out, um, using Verticomas reporting in, uh, from Excel and what have you, but actually a data model just automates that and frees up people to do more interesting things such as and that's, that, that's a very, very typical situation of describing people. I like to think of it as carrying data from one system to the other in an Excel or a CSV file and then shoveling it into the machine. And we really shouldn't be spending our time doing that. It's a waste of our time. You're right. Totally. And we need to be freeing up people to actually interpret what that data is saying and form hypothesis and design the experiments and, and understand what it does to business metrics. Okay. So, so I find it typically takes a few hours to set up a standardized feedback process and, and, and that just starts to feed immediately, right? The day after you set it up, you get feedback that can be tied to performance. You're off and running. It's really, some, some organizations will spend months setting this stuff up. 
it ain't that hard. And <laughs> And, and for the business, we, we make it easy, right? So rather than walking in a room and saying our course was fantastic and doing jazz hands, which is hard for the business to believe, we make it easy by actually proving it, right? We say, look, this was performance before, this was performance after for the group who got material. This is the performance before, the performance after for people who, who we gave placebo material to, right? We can see that group A is better than group B. So... So it's just about making it easy for, for those three cohorts. I, I love that very clear description. Is there also scope for being honest in discussions or perhaps we keep this inside where we say, hey, look, we did this experiment and we found that this thing we're doing, it's not having an effect and we should stop doing it or we should change it. Yes. So that I think that's that's another reason people in LD might have a fear of data, okay? Because it might actually show things don't work. One of the first things I done when I moved into LD analytics was I was challenged by the business to prove that a course they'd been running for the last five years at a cost of £100,000 a year was actually really improving their, their MPS, right? So I went back and I pulled out all the data from years gone by and all the attendance records and I was able to prove it made not one jot of difference at all. So that, that was a difficult conversation for the people. It was perceived to be a difficult conversation for the people in L&D who might have to say, we've just wasted all this money over the last five years. But yeah. from my marketing background, I, I, I look at it as we can now save you £100,000 a year going forward. Exactly. Exactly. And what happened? What happened at the end of that? Oh, well, that was that was a success story. That course was pulled, which which was great. I have had instances, unfortunately, and I, I probably shouldn't see, say where um, huge like, seven seven digit figure uh, amounts of money have been spent on training, been able to prove it makes no difference. And people just go ahead with it anyway. But that's the prerogative. They, they brush it under the carpet. Well, yeah. OK, I think that will happen in the short term. But I think the more the sort of discipline that you're talking about becomes widespread, I think that it's going to become increasingly difficult to do because people... I hope, will be starting to expect the sort of data and outcomes you're talking about rather than finding it to be a novelty. Absolutely. At the end of each interview, we ask uh, the same couple of questions. What do you wish you'd known when you started in L&D and what are you curious about right now? So in either order. So, so what I wish I knew when I started was I wish I knew that less was more. So when I moved into L&D analytics from customer analytics, I built some really complicated stuff. It looked fantastic. It, it had confidence intervals on it. It was, it was absolutely incredible. And I done that pretty much to show how much thought had gone into what I was doing and, and to show off a little bit to, to people who were perhaps a, a little data ignorant, okay? But what I found by doing that is that <laughs> nothing that I produced was actually used by anyone, okay? It was just too complicated. It looked too scientific. It looked a bit mathy, okay? So it took me about a year to pair it right back to the absolute fundamentals of what is important to L&D and how do I present that in a way that is palatable so that people want to go in and actually consume the insights. So, so I wish I knew that at the start because that would have saved a lot of time. really fascinating, though, as a sanity check for our field that we are effectively working with our data and our insights at a much less fundamental level than everybody else's. We, we're probably dealing with some basics. Other people have gone on to do some rather more sophisticated things. With. Still, let's be positive that we are doing it. All right, so that's what you wish you'd known. Less is more. Absolutely. And what are you curious about? So right now, I'm I'm thinking about identifying colleagues' latent skills. Okay, so I'm curious Ooh. how we tap into 
these things. So, so within a call centre, let's say, we might have a bunch of data science students, okay? In the evenings, they're spending 80% of their time on phone calls and 20% of their time waiting for phone calls, okay? So how do we remove costs from the business by utilising those skills rather than upskilling other people, right? Is, is, should L&D be looking at this? Um, and how do we share the knowledge that these people have more widely on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, okay? I'm also quite curious about what organizations are doing to help upskill people who might soon be looking for new roles, okay? So the times we're living in just now, we've got something coming down the road towards us, okay? And I expect we're going to have a lot of people who have been absolutely knocking their job out of the parks, their, their job out of the park with performance for the last five years, who, who might find that once they hit a new employer, the skills that they had are actually way out of date. So I wonder how L&D can work with, with HR to help hire for aptitude rather than skills necessarily and how to get involved in that process. That's something that's on my mind. Uh, two great answers there. I think the latent skills, fascinating, um, at discovering the latent skills and subsequently sharing the knowledge across the organisation. But also this business of upskilling, there is absolutely no question. Upskilling and reskilling are going to be huge for at least the next 12 months, I'd say until at least the end of 2021 and possibly beyond, because there's going to be so much economic turmoil. And it's, I think, incumbent on us, as you say, Derek, to work with uh, HR to find the best in people, even when it's not necessarily immediately apparent. I think that's a great one to have for the totally. to wrap up with. Well, Derek, look, it's been great chatting. We've got the notes of how people can get in touch with you uh, in the in the notes for the show, but uh, great to be speaking with you today. Thanks very much and best of luck with the Learning Measurement Company. Thank you, stay safe.